0: Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. My name is Nira Izakovich, and this is the uh, Ethics in Action podcast. uh, My co-host, Vlado Petrovich, and our guest today uh, is uh, Alisa Sopova. So without much further ado, uh, good morning, good afternoon. We are in, uh, I guess, two and a half different time zones. uh, And Vlado, I will hand it over to you.
1: Thank you so much. So let me welcome Alisa Sopova. She is, in my view, the person to talk about what's happening in Ukraine today. She's a journalist, an anthropologist, a dear friend. And let me try to elaborate really shortly about why I think she's an excellent interlocutor. Alisa is a native of Donetsk, and back in 2014, she witnessed the tide of violence, which happened in that part of the world. She didn't only witness it, but she also covered it, because at the time, she was a young journalist, very brave and talented. She remained very brave and very young and very talented. I met her in Cambridge, where she was on a prestigious Nieman Fellowship at Harvard University. She was also a fellow of the Davis Center there. And back then, in 2016-ish or so, she would talk to anybody who cared to listen that perhaps that conflict is frozen, but indeed, people are still dying there. Perhaps not so much of shelling at that point, but certainly out of neglect, out of lack of access to medical care, to social services, to education, and probably even more so out of lack of hope. She took me to Donbass in 2019, so I was also able to witness this ticking bomb there. Alisa is currently enrolled in a doctoral program at Princeton University, but no use searching for her in her office. She is in the field. She traversed Ukraine recently from uzgorod to Kharkiv via Bucha, via Irpin, via Kiev, where I think she currently is. I learned a lot from Alisa, and so can you, because she is a contributor to major media outlets, but she is also an extremely engaging and compassionate person. So, Alisa, welcome. Thank you so much for finding the time. How are you and where are you?
2: Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm in Kiev right now. As you've noted, I've been here for about a month now. I've been to Lviv, to Kiev, to Kharkiv, around Kiev, but mostly I'm based, based in Kiev.
1: And if I were to ask you what are your major or... Strongest impressions on returning to Ukraine. What would those be?
2: Well, something is um, something that I would like to say straight away is that, like most of my American friends would think, it's like too unsafe to even cross the border to Ukraine. But the thing is that the closer you are, like the least dramatic it looks. So when you are in downtown Kyiv, as I am, it looks like almost normal. It's like. Everything is nice, everything is working. There are like hipster coffee shops on every corner where you can get like latte with oat milk, you know, and everything. And it looks pretty, it looks pretty normal and not so dangerous at all, even though there was a rocket strike in Kiev just a couple of days ago. But um, and this is kind of a tricky, a tricky thing because you can say everything is okay. You know, Kiev looks like nothing ever happened. And uh, I guess it's very different if you just like come as a foreigner and look at it. And uh, if you just like live a day-to-day life as just a regular Ukrainian here, because there are, as as you mentioned earlier, there are so many things that are just like not spectacular enough. And I can see it already in Kyiv now, because I'm still like involved a lot in journalism community. And I already hear a lot of my photographer friends uh, complaining that there is nothing to photograph in Kyiv. It just looks like, like normal, like there is no war, like nothing is happening. It looks even too good, you know. It's just full of like well-dressed hipsters and everything. But um, the thing is that again, if you live, if you just live here on day-to-day level, there are just like a million problems that you are facing, starting from. And of course, we know that there are so many people in Ukraine who's... Who lost their loved people who lost their homes whose family members are fighting at the front lines and of course these people are walking past us on the street every day and you cannot just tell by looking at the person's face you know what this person has been through but even if you speak of a majority of people who didn't live through anything like particularly dramatic in the sense that they like lost home you know or or were like or had had near-death experience still like economic situation is very complicated like inflation is not what it is in america inflation is like prices just like grow 30 percent, you know out of the blue currency is falling it's uh, impossible to get gas to get petrol you know in your car you have to just like spend hours and hours chasing it on different gas stations standing you know in, in, in lines there everybody who has you know who has any male family members they like they cannot leave the country, and everybody is living in this everyday fear of getting this note, you know, of mobilization. And I just like looking at all my friends. I'm just so feel so grateful that my husband is not Ukrainian citizen, you know, because it's just like it's just like this everyday kind of anticipation of something horrible to happen. People just like being afraid to open their mailboxes, you know, in Kiev. Yeah, it kind of looks normal, but again, like if you're driving, you cannot get gas. If you're Using public transportation, it's not quite like working exactly like it should. And Kiev is a huge city; it takes like two hours to get often from one place to the other. And then you go, you take metro, and then it stops in the middle because there is air raid siren, and it doesn't go on the bridge because of air raid siren, and you're stuck. You don't know, you know, when you can get to a destination point. And then it results in the in the situation, for example, when like, I have a lot of friends in Kiev, but we are not really see, able to see each other except on the weekends because there is curfew at 11 p.m and most people i work until like 7 p.m or something and then really between your between the time when you work and and curfew there is not enough time you know to do anything else because like by the time you get out you get somewhere there's not not enough time to come back and it's just all too complicated logistically and so people just end up like being stuck in their neighborhood just like going to work coming home you know cooking dinner and like not engaging in anything else which is not which is not typical for people in Kyiv because like everyone would be engaged in something some sports you know some social social lives and this is all kind of you know diminished and this all creates this kind of overall feeling of you know depressiveness and like hopelessness and the uh, feeling that yes like we lived through I mean I didn't uh, but uh People in Kiev lived through this like very heavy phase of, of bombing and everything. And now it's over, but like the struggle is not over. And it's not clear when life will get better, you know. And it's yeah. all kind of, you can feel this in the air.
1: But am I then mistaken? Uh, yeah, I got an impression that lots of people abandoned Kiev at the uh, first weeks of war. And then they slowly started coming back, right?
2: Well, they started coming back pretty fast. So when, so I I came to Kyiv in like first days of May and the big kind of watershed date was the 9th of May because initially the fear was that like Putin has this obsession with the victory day and he wants to achieve some result by then. But then I think this kind of idea evolved into just anticipation that something horrible will happen on on May 9th, which is very typical. I remember from like previous, You know, the beginning, like the the first phase of the war, it's kind of very typical when people want just like some resolution and they just begin like invest in all this energy into like on, you know, March 27th, something will happen. And then everybody wait for this date, you know, so everybody was like expecting something horrible on May 9th. And so when we came just briefly before May 9th, it was still pretty empty. You know, just like to to give an example, we live in this like apartment building in downtown Kiev. And when we came... uh, the back and everybody parks in the backyard, and the backyard was empty. There was maybe like one or two cars, and you could park anywhere. And now it's like impossible to find a parking spot. There are just dozens and dozens and dozens of cars everywhere. And it started since May 9th when nothing happened, people just started coming back and they were coming back, like you could see sometimes, there was a period when you could could see like every day more and more people on the streets, you know, more and more. I started getting this like text messages that this restaurant is opening, that yoga studio is opening, you know, things started opening. So now I would say like out of my friends and people who I know personally, I would say like 80% of them left uh, when it was really bad. And now all of them are back. Mm -hmm. So eventually, Pretty much, there are there are still some people who who are not back, but but most of people, well, most of people are back. I would say. Yeah.
1: yeah. So there is this interesting theme, and we spoke about it before. Actually, that yeah. uh, the war is for the most part not what war what people expect war to be like. The war, to my mind, happens to be more day to day boring than one would actually expect, depending when one is. And certainly much more ugly than people tend to depict it and uh, i mean i was frequently fighting these preconceived notions of uh, what people think war should look like what people think victims should look like what people think heroes should look like it differs crazily from what's actually happening at least this was my experience
2: yeah i mean part of the thing that i'm usually focusing on and i've been focusing on it for years but now i just i'm a little obsessed with this one concept that i i, I heard from from an anthropologist from Lebanon, her name is Munira Hayat, and she has this this like this idea that is rooted in her in her version is rooted in like global inequality and colonialism, and she says that for the people in the West, like in kind of first world countries, the war is an event, so it's something that has a beginning and an end, you know, and it's kind of has some arc of development and then it's over, and then she says for people in other parts of the world, such as Lebanon in her case. What is not an event but a structure? It's something that doesn't, doesn't, it never ends, it doesn't really have a beginning or an end. It's just longer, longer than your life sometimes. It's just something that is always there, always in the background, and always structured in your life, and always just kind of something that you have to take into consideration. It's a so, lifestyle,
1: it's a lifestyle, so to say. Well, <laughs> perhaps so it's you,
2: you never chose, and that's kind of shared right by everybody there. Yeah. So war, I would say that like in kind of in global media, war is covered usually as an event. And we kind of tend to see it as event uh, as a result. And then this kind of invisible side of it is war as structure. Like yeah. as, I, as I'm saying, like even now, I'm used to the fact that everybody thought war in Ukraine was boring like a year ago, two and three years ago. But now most of photojournalists I know they just keep going on and on about how it's already boring now here, you know, because it just doesn't look right. There is not enough, you know, there is not enough drama happening. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that was actually, perhaps this is an ideal time to plug Nir in because one of his major concepts and ideas was on truth rather than the peace as a major concept in international relations.
0: Yeah, I, I was just going to say, Elisa, that your um, Lebanese friend's uh, framing uh you know, rang very familiar. And one very related kind of uh, Mm -hmm. thought is that uh, war, if you sort of make an analogy to health is more like some kind of chronic autoimmune condition rather than a pneumonia that comes and completely, you know, goes away. So it's, you know, like diabetes, almost something that you have to manage uh, or at least most wars actually. Uh, whether uh, it's where you are or in the Middle East, it's kind of a managed situation that colors uh, everyday life. And like you are saying, an event is much easier and in some ways more interesting to cover than uh, that kind of uh, chronic state. I mean, that, that being said, is there, um, I'm assuming this, well, actually, I'm not assuming anything. This sense of uh, uh, event versus uh, emerging slow burn chronic state—how does that, from what you're seeing, how's that different in Eastern Ukraine, and the Donbas uh, area?
2: Well, yeah, I think that part part of the like what you've said is right, and part of the problem is that you know because war is not viewed as a chronic situation, the task of managing it falls usually on just like common people who live there. As in Russian, they say, you know, the, the salvage of people who are drowning is the business of people who are drowning, you know, this kind of situation. Mm. So there has not been, and the, here in comparison between like central Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine, I think people in Donbas are very well aware of the situation while people here, are, for people here, it's kind of new. And um, they're experiencing it for the first time. People in Donbass are well aware that, like, you know, nobody's going to out there to help them. You know, it's like their own problem they have to deal with. And this is why, for example, now when it moved again back to Donbass so much, we are seeing so many people there refusing to leave, refusing to evacuate or even people returning back there who fled, but now even though it's like escalating every day and getting worse and worse, there are actually many people who are just returning back to like Slavinsk or Krematorsk because people kind of don't expect that there will be any help for them. And they just like know that in their own house, they have subsistence farming, you know, they have a little vegetable garden, you know, and they can survive somehow while they have this fear that they won't survive if they're like, detached from their home at all. So I think this is kind of one of the big differences. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think people like the kind of from the outside, the big difference is that now actually Ukrainians have m- much more opportunities internationally than they had in 2014. And there are really all these like possibilities that you can just like go across the border to Poland, you know, and get um, Get a, a job permit and get, you know, long-term visa and everything. And many, many people from like Kiev and Kharkiv uh, use this opportunity. And I think there are multiple reasons why why people from DnDAS are like going for it to a lesser degree. But one of them, I think, is that they are already kind of disillusioned and they just don't believe that uh, that there is anything good for them out there. Mm.
1: And can I ask you, Alisa, so even though it's certainly a part of the same conflict, it seems to me that from February, this is a dramatically different situation. So could we draw some sort of parallels and what is majorly different? How are people perceiving the conflict? How does it change Ukraine or Ukrainians, if you wish? I mean, I had a weird experience in Lviv, where I met a lot of people uh, uh, two months ago. And uh, my impression is that they started meeting one another through these huge internally internally displaced persons waves and uh, getting completely other understanding of what uh, Ukraine is or being Ukrainian.
2: Yeah, I think this. Uh, I mean, there there are so many implications of what's happening, and uh, I, of course, I have here to like make take, make a note of my positionality because I'm from Donetsk and I did experience it back then. I do. I think have certain resentment, you know, towards people in like Kyiv v- v- because um, really this war didn't exist for them until it started now in February, in February. And there are like, there is like a little bit of like internal tensions for like people who post this like photos were saying, oh, it's 100th, you know, 100th day of war. And then other people come in and saying it's not 100th day at all. You know, it's like eight year- years plus 100. And uh, I definitely belong to the second cohort of people. And- so it's i'm still not sure if it is this, this experience is something that is going to unite ukrainians or divide them even more because until february you know i like as i said i had a lot of resentment because in 2014 you know like you have some like near-death experience in donetsk and then you drive like three hours away to kharkiv and people just like literally don't care they just live life that is entirely normal and like everything that is happening in donetsk is not their business at all and uh, now we all pretty much have this experience, even though there is like a lot of competition for the degree of suffering between like Kiev and Lviv already, you know. But we can say that we all, to some degree, have been exposed to this. And now there are different, on kind of day to day level, there are different schools of thought, you know, about this. Because some people say that some people are from Donbass say that they feel that now there is more understanding, you know. That everybody had this experience now. And that people in Kiev now realize that it didn't happen to us and then yet just because we were already separatist sympathizers, you know, or like called Putin or to come or something like this. That this is something that can indeed happen to everyone in Ukraine. And that there is like this kind of shared trauma is now shared indeed, and not just ours. My feeling has been, my personal feeling has been more that it's not quite like this, you know. I'm talking to people in Kiev, and they are all like, "Oh my God, you know, I lived through this. That has nothing have, has never happened to anyone, you know, before that." That's because, of course, when it happens to you, you know, it's like unique experience. And they're like, "This is unbelievable. I could never believe that this is possible in my country." And I'm like, "Yeah, of course, you know, it is possible in your country. You just like never bothered to look, you know, to the east." This is my impression, but um, I think people who believe that it's kind of going to unite us. Uh, there are more of them, so maybe I'm mistaken here.
0: no, no it's, it, you know, it's interesting. It, it just reminds me, you know, I, I'm Israeli, and it just reminds me in some ways of very similar dynamics. I'm pretty sure that versions of this, variations of this, you know, happen in so many places. So, for example, the uh, Israeli version would be um, whenever there is a Uh, skirmish between uh, the Israelis and the Hamas. Uh, It's uh, on the Israeli side uh, primarily uh, southern towns that are close to the Gaza Strip that are affected and everybody in Tel Aviv more or less and and Haifa uh, more to the north are sort of living uh, uh, their own life and it doesn't impact them and then once in a while, if there's uh, uh, some kind of impact uh, more to the North people, almost word for word, say, uh, Alisa what you said, I couldn't believe this this would happen here. Um, I'm curious, uh, I guess just as a follow-up, if this does sort of uh, continue to become a, a new version of a frozen conflict now in Donbas, or if it focuses in on Donbas, do you think it's just going to go right back to the kind of thing uh, that you were describing, that people in uh, Kiev and Lviv are going to pretty much think that the war is over, or act as if the war is over, or think back to their suffering uh, from the point of view of after the war? or?
1: And if I can interject to sort of like strengthen Nier's uh, question, and actually the whole debate about relative experience of war. I was also born or spent my childhood about like 80 or 100 kilometers from the front line, but uh, I didn't interiorize that fact for quite a long while, quite a long, I knew that the war was going on, but simply it didn't impact me sufficiently to understand um, the relative proximity of the the battleground. And if you take it in an even bigger scale, I mean most of Americans rarely understand that they are almost in some, always in some sort of a war somewhere on the planet. So apparently until it hits you, you don't see the missile coming, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm very well aware of it. And um, even like I, I, I've been for the past eight years the one going around and being like, look what's happening in Ukraine and how can you ignore it? But I, I'm very well aware of the fact that until it happened to me, I couldn't care less. You know, I knew there was like war in Iraq or Afghanistan or whatnot. Like uh, most of people, uh, you know, most of people, of course, don't don't pay attention. And it, I guess it's normal.
0: But even after it happens to you, the minute it seems like the minute it stops happening to you, you stop, I mean, there's just a very, very strong urge and need for normality.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really like. It's really, I guess, some psychological phenomenon, like we, we never believe that it's going to be us who will like, die in some airplane, you know, crash or something, right? So we are exposed every day to all this, like, news with very graphic violence all over the world. But then when something similar happens to us, we are like, oh, my God, how, how can this happen? How is it even possible in our time and in our part of the world and everything, you know? It comes as such a big surprise. Mm-hmm. And so... And so, yeah, I, I find it ironic that that came such a big surprise to people in Kiev, for example. But um, but I'm also well aware that like it's hard, it's really like I guess it would be um, it wouldn't be fair to blame people for not caring for something that is happening you know away from yeah. where they are. But I, coming back to the why, oh, sorry, did you want to
0: say? I'm just absolutely. I'm just curious if there's kind of a direction where this is again becoming a problem of. Donbass, of Eastern Ukraine.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, so coming back about, yeah, your question about frozen conflict, I, I wanted to know that, first of all, I, I'm not sure, like, to which degree it was frozen ever, because before uh, 2014, we used, at least in this part of the world, right, we used kind of expression frozen conflict to refer to places like Transnistria, for example, where there was, like, no single bullet shot in, like, 20 years or more. And in that bus, there was always... Something happening. There was always some degree of shelling, and, and it was never really that. Yeah, like I don't. I don't think there is a good definition. So definition of like what you know, what should the intensity should be to call to even call it frozen. I yeah. heard somebody calling it sluggish or something like this. You know, mm. I guess that was kind of a good definition. It's,
0: you're right. I mean, certainly not frozen for the people who are there.
2: Yeah, but uh, but but like thinking of. Whether it's coming, I definitely I'm definitely very much afraid of the fact that it's going to just be pushed back to the bus, and it's like, you know, that place belongs to the in war already, so who cares? But I do think or hope that um it really like even just like technically and logistically, it would be very hard to have it as a frozen situation, much you know, because it's a very different scale now. And there was like like places like Mariupol now, it's like a huge city, and it's like literally unlivable now. And how are you going? So life for these people, like along this demarcation line, has been very hard. As I said, not just hard, but it was just like logistically a mess, because they were a town that was like a small town of Mariinka that had no heating for all this time. But it was really, and people were building some like kind of impromptu stoves in the. Apartment buildings and then they burned down and it was just crazy. But it was a very tiny town. Now, for example, Avdeyevka is going to be this because uh, um, Avdeyevka is a company town of like a huge coke plant, and the whole heating uh, is provided by that. Um, of the whole town is provided by that by that coke plant, and the coke plant is gone now. It's destroyed, so there will be no heating in Avdeyevka ever anymore, Uh, and it's like it's it's 25, it's like five times bigger than that Marienka. So I just uh, just for those who,
1: for those whose geography is not the strongest, uh, and mine was not, Abdivka is a suburb of Donetsk basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the place where Alisa took us in 2019. You can see the center of Donetsk if you look very closely. Yeah, it's behind
2: Donetsk airport, which was a big battlefield back then. But uh, right now, it's one of the most like hot spots. Uh, There is the Severodonetsk that everybody is talking about, but Avdiivka has also been like uh, bombed and shelled very, very heavily because it's right on the border, right next to Donetsk, and they're kind of trying to push through there. So I just—it just seems to me that at this point uh, the scale, the utter scale of destruction and of the front line to control, is just like too big to make it like technically possible to just sit there for another 10 years and uh, have it mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of frozen, you know, stalemate state. So it and seems them- to me that, to me at least, it seems that there should be some, you know, some kind of different resolution. And
1: I mean, tell me, Alisa.
2: And, and, and of course, also, I, I don't think that like Russia would be content with uh, just like having it back because, I'm not an expert in like geopolitics. You so see, I just focus on like day to everyday lives of people. But uh, the way I understand it, like Russia's main motivation is not to like gain territory or something, but to make a point, you know, that it's like a big player that can dictate, you know, the, the world order. And uh, of course, it cannot do this by controlling something out there in Donbass. This is why it started. They started this whole scale invasion. So I don't think that they would just retreat back there again. And uh, now that they are able to like harass, they started you know harassing the whole territory and sending this like rocket strikes now and the rocket strikes now and then to like other cities in Ukraine. I don't think that they will probably give up on this kind of um, strategy, if you can call it so so easily. So I do I do kind of hope that it's going to develop differently rather than just go back to what it was before. It would be a really kind of a disappointing outcome for everyone, mm-hmm. I imagine, for Putin, first of all.
1: And tell me, Alisa, meanwhile, what do we actually know about how people live uh, on the territories which have been recently occupied by Russians?
2: Recently or, or, or not recently?
1: Well, however you please. But I'm more interested in recently because, of course, we heard a lot about, about Bucha. We heard a lot about Irpin. something about Mariupol, you know, not that much. But when yep. one asks oneself, I mean, Russians currently occupy quite a lot of territory. I mean, okay, if you include the previous acquisitions, it's almost like um, half in Italy, actually. Yeah. And uh, I keep wondering how are people living there? There were some footages in the early stages of the, uh, right. of the Russian right. advance, of people coming right. to the tanks, going away, and so on. And then all of a sudden, as if a thick cloud, at least where I am, uh, is, is, is preventing us from understanding uh, what are those people thinking, feeling, aspiring to
2: right so it's an excellent observation and i think it's uh you're pointing to a big problem right because of course on the one hand it's just impossible to cover for media or anyone else because there is just no access but uh, of course there are a million ways to you know to gain indirect access and to talk to people and make telephone calls and everything and nobody really bothers to do that not international media and not ukrainian media there has been like some some amount of stories from Mariupol, from people who fled Mariupol, for example. Yeah, but places like Kherson, like the whole big area, there is like complete silence, and um, I I do find it very problematic, and I find it politically kind of continuation of what happened in Donbass and in Crimea earlier. Is that kind of out of heart, out of my out of sight, you know, out of mind, you know, so. Initially, initially, like very early on, there was this all this coverage of like brave people who live there and who don't want to fall under occupation. But then the longer it goes, the easier it becomes to just like scapegoat people and actually assume that, oh, if it happened to them, it's like their fault somehow. And I'm seeing, so I don't know myself very much about what's happening in Kherson, for example, but I've heard some kind of random sentiments from people there saying that like, oh, I'm I already hear from people that, if you are remaining there then you are satisfied with everything you are okay with everything there and of course this is usually not the motivation for people to remain you know people remain for all kinds of reasons first of all because they have elderly family members you know who they have to take care of or they're afraid that they will become homeless and they will have nowhere to live and uh, and all kinds of motivations like this but people already feel kind of being scapegoated just for staying so i do think that uh, Partly it's lack of access and partly it's just like this uh, tendency to scapegoat people for remaining in occupation. Um, Yeah, and so like about speaking of what we actually know, we don't know much. I personally don't know much. And I think I'm I'm the one who actually makes maybe a little bit more effort than an average Ukrainian to learn uh, about such things. So, you know, I think that they are trying to switch the territories to ruble from Grievna to kind of uh, Russian currency zone that um, I've read some stuff that they are trying to distribute Russian passports there. But I'm not sure if it is Ukrainians kind of having moral panic about it more than it's actually happening or not. it's hard to kind of get in or out of there. Mostly I think people have to do it through Russia now in some big circle. Uh, the big the big kind of issue that, for example, horrifies me the most when I think about it is the story about filtration that is the most relevant for Mariupol. That like when the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, they took control over Mariupol and there are 500,000 people there and a lot of them might be, you know, might be fighters who changed, dread, who changed clothes or just you know, activists or something. And so they subjected all these people through, to this procedure of filtration where everybody has to go through kind of interrogation that lasts like four hours on average. And your phone is being checked for everything and you're interrogated and everything. And this is, I don't know, to me, it just sounds very disturbing. And I know that, uh, that this happened mostly to people in Mariupol but not really to people outside there, not to people in Kherson. And, uh,
1: there were yeah. these stories from Kherson about the lists, alleged lists of people who had been perceived by the Russians as pro-Ukrainian activists or pro-anti-Russian uh, and so on. But I never heard a follow-up of whether there had been mass incarceration. Whether there had been some sort of filtration, so somehow, as if you know, yeah, I, do, I don't it.
2: think there was uh, this was they call filtration there. But I uh, like this this question of like black lists of all the like suspicious people. It always comes up, and uh, on one on the one hand, from my experience in Donetsk, I want to say that it's a little exaggerated because people who flee, they often want to portray themselves as like big dissidents. And they're like, I'm on a blacklist. I'm personally being, you know, uh, and all those kinds of things. So, I don't know. My intuition is also that, first of all, there is obviously going to be a lot of repression in Kherson and in all these areas, newly, newly, you know, newly occupied. But just, just based, I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken, but just based on my experience of what I've seen, I think that it's going to just happen much slow, much more slowly because Mariupol was already in Donetsk region, was already kind of frontline town. But when it started in Donetsk and in Crimea, if you just have this like whole several million people who just fall completely out of the blue from being Ukrainian citizens into this situation, I guess Russians just understand that they have to kind of go slowly and maybe let these people, give these people some time to kind of realize that they're living in a new reality. Because a lot of people in the beginning they would be like in next, they would be like, this is crazy, we don't accept this. This is just some circus. But then eventually when the circus doesn't go away in a year and two years, they just end up accepting it, you know, it's a new reality. So I think they're kind of giving people this time to accept it as new reality. But I just yeah, so so if you ask me to guess, I would say that it's not very dramatic. it must not be very dramatic in here so on now, but it's going to just tighten and tighten eventually.
0: Yeah. And the and the Russians have this really long history of knowing how to go slowly and of doing that in different places. Um you know, from following uh this from here, you know, pretty obsessively,
1: uh from the so-called near's bunker.
0: Yeah, from the so-called near's bunker, right? Uh you know, interest outside of Ukraine is beginning almost inevitably and pretty heartbreakingly is beginning to weaken, is beginning to, um, certainly in the United States, it's becoming less and less of a story. And uh, I guess I'm wondering from uh, either the, uh, well, from both the people that you um, are speaking to in your immediate environment, maybe uh, from uh, people that uh, you're speaking to, and uh, Donbass, uh, do people care about the level of support from outside? Is that actually on people's mind as opposed to uh, on politicians' mind? Is there a sense of gratitude, betrayal, uh, move from one to the other? Like,
2: Yeah, I think that for now, for now, most Ukrainians are kind of still in this mode of you know, assuming that what's happened to them is like completely unique and unheard of. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of take for granted that there is all the support because, of course, you know, when something like this is been done to, you know, to people, of course, everybody should step in. So I think uh, that that we still don't realize to a large degree here in Ukraine that the interest to something like this can actually go away, you know. Um, and this uh, realization is probably to come, going to come up and be very disillusioning. But uh, I, I think our president is probably doing a pretty good job at like being very annoying and going around the world and like poking everybody <laughs> and reminding it. I don't know how much longer it will work and be efficient, but but he's definitely trying. Um yeah, what else I wanted to say? But as I said, there are many people, like many people in the East, they just don't expect anything because they, because they already they are pretty cynical about it. But also, I, I like again looking at it from like my point of view. I do hope that maybe it won't this interest won't go away as entirely as it did last time, because this time actually the West did get engaged much, much, much more. Right. And that's kind of just technically, I guess, harder to just get completely disengaged. So I think now it's it's not going to be what it used to be in March when just Ukraine was all over the place. But uh, I yeah. do kind of hope that it's going to be uh, still like more consistently uh, um more consistently on the agenda than
0: the future yeah should. no i I just think there's differences between the actual engagement and the perception of engagement, both the perception from here and the perception of there. so I mean there's actually something pretty thoughtful about, for example, this move and this shift and this push to uh start sending, you know, mid-range and longer range uh, uh, rocket system from uh, uh, the UK and from here to uh, Eastern Ukraine. Uh, that is happening. And I think that commitment is real and probably uh, a pretty long range, but that is happening as, you know, the Americans are beginning to uh, focus very intensively, for example, on questions of school shootings, the abortion debate. I mean, Ukraine is moving pretty precipitously uh, down the ladder of, you know, public preoccupation here. Um, And so I'm just wondering, you know, whether that kind of loss of interest is being noticed in Ukraine.
2: I don't think it's been noticed yet, like the same way you would notice it. Because again, I think that for now, for Ukrainians, just the mere idea that the war in Ukraine can be viewed by somebody as the same scale of event as abortion debate or something yeah. is just completely out of range of possibilities. Mm. So people just like don't think about it this way. Or the uh, Ukraine
1: could be marginalized the way Syria is, in a sense. Okay, whatever happens there happens there. We are partially involved,
2: but I guess so. But also, I I want to say that um, nobody really expected such. Like yes, we were. On the one hand, I said that we take for granted the fact that like everybody should step in when something like this is happening. But on the other hand, I think like pragmatically, most people didn't expect in Ukraine that there would be such level of engagement as it happened. Nobody really expected it, right? No
1: no cavalry. No cavalry was expected, actually.
2: Not only no cavalry. You know, I was just like I was just interviewing uh, somebody recently uh, who fled uh, to Europe. And she said, you know, I, I was like, I was aware that something's going to happen. And so I was thinking of ways to leave the country legally, because I was totally expecting that when it starts, it will be, we will be in a position that uh, Syrians were in, that all the borders will be closed and we won't be let in anywhere. And that was exactly my expectation before the war. When people were asking like, oh, are your friends like fleeing already? I was, I was saying, are you crazy? Where are they going to flee? Do you think they are welcome anywhere? So the fact that like the borders were opened for Ukrainians like this was something that like nobody really expected. And yes, so- and I have
1: to say, it, it leads to a well really regrettable phenomenon that basically the Ukrainians are perceived by many people from let's say Syria or from Afghanistan as privileged refugees, whom European doors are much more open yeah, than yeah, to them. Yeah. And again, I find it very regretful because that's, of course, factually true. But it's certainly not not the fault of the Ukrainians, right? It's rather of the receiving countries, (laughs) European Union. But the problem is that, uh, as you said, compassion is way too frequently a pie, and then people are fighting for their part part of that. Yeah,
2: yeah. But what what I was bringing this this too is that um, I think, like on the one hand, Ukrainians kind of take for granted uh, a lot of help they're getting. But on the other hand, they are aware that they got so much. And um, they are kind of, not that if it stops now, that's already enough. I wouldn't say that. But um, yeah, but there is some awareness that like, actually West has done a lot. Mm -hmm. And that uh, even if it begins like slowly getting less or slowly waning, you know, it's still kind of a lot, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So can I ask you something, Alisa? You had been talking about uh, about Donbas for years in the US, and that this conflict is forgotten. Uh, there was an op-ed of yours about the forgotten war and how people live in it. I remember. I never, I
2: never happened. chose this title, but every single, every single story I wrote in these years was always given by one or another the editor was always given a title that contained words "forgotten war." I, mm. I find it, yeah. Mm. I find it even
1: though, it. but I mean, e- even though in a sense, like, <laughs> history had proven you, right? Uh, I still uh, want to ask you if you expected things to go this way, if February surprised you.
2: Yeah, I totally didn't expect things to go this way. And I think that actually, the more you followed, and the more you were immersed into this war since the beginning, I think the less you expected it to happen, unless you were some military expert who looked at it from a different perspective. Because I, you know, if you follow, if if you follow news from Donbass since 2014, you're just used to the fact that every, like, several months, there is this big hype coming up about, there is a big escalation coming, you know, everything's going to change, you know, the big war is starting and everything. So, so eventually it has become just, for me and for people who follow that it closely, it has become this kind of, boy who was crying wolf you know situation when there is some kind of promise and hype around big invasion you know always coming up and never happening so when it started this January whenever it started I was just like super skeptical and I was saying to everybody oh come on I've heard this you cannot imagine how many times I've heard this you know
1: Mm -hmm. about the military build up 100,000 soldiers across the border and so on Mm -hmm. yeah Mm
2: -hmm. yeah so I I didn't expect this and, um, and I think uh, nobody really expected it, right?
1: And and once it started, what, what startled you the most? Was it the rocket attacks all over the country? Was it the treatment of the civilian population? Was it Bucha? Was it uh, that Kharkiv was attacked? Was it that uh, Kiev was attacked? Or something completely different, actually?
2: Yeah, what startled me the most? I think like I mean it was just, just like purely emotionally it was just like very hard seeing like Kyiv you know being bombed or something like this because you know even for me as somebody who fled Donetsk at some point Kyiv has always been like a safe kind of haven you know it's like seeing New York bombed for Americans or something you know they're like this kind of symbolic things that you really like don't expect this to happen to them but on a different level, I think for me, like I think this sentiment is kind of shared with many Ukrainians it was actually a kind of, you know, betrayal on the side of like Russians <laughs> in a way that, um, you know, we knew that Putin is crazy, you know, and uh, that their elites are, you know, just losing their mind but um it was very uh, scary to realize because most ukrainians have when they talk about this like brotherhood nations or or something like this it's like it's of course uh, it's just like colonialist propaganda on one hand but on the other hand almost like for ukraine the situation was as if you know united states invade canada you know not iraq or something but canada you know we have like everybody has family some part of family in russia everybody knows somebody everybody has been there people from Russia has been here. So So,
1: Alisa herself has a degree from, uh, from Moscow.
2: Right, right. So I don't think anybody thought about it very consciously before it started, but I think somehow some kind of underlying expectation was that even if like crazy Putin tries to do something like this, Russian people just like won't fight against us, you know? or they will just like go out on the streets and just like do something you know, entirely to change it entirely because this is just an unimaginable thing to do for them to do this to us, you know? And so when we started seeing, and when I personally started seeing that they kind of accepted it, you know, and it was okay. And everybody had some kind of justification for for why it's okay. That was somehow very, very scary and yeah.
0: Yeah, I was actually following up on that. I was going to ask you earlier about this um, sense of betrayal about whether people around you or people that you talk to have a distinction between sort of the Russian political class as orchestrating this and ordinary Russians, but it's that is much harder to maintain when there is this kind of initial affinity between
2: yeah.
0: Russia and Ukraine.
2: Yeah, but so this question actually of like whether whether Ukrainians like blame, you know, whether Ukrainians are capable of separating like elites from right. other people. So on one hand, the sense of betrayal and everything, it's there. On the other hand, it's it's not so simple. It's like a very complicated question. And I had myself many, you know, debates and discussions with my friends and uh, and different people engaged in this. Because um, I thought, so before before this big escalation in February, it was actually one of the, you know, specific features of this war that people on, like common people on different sides were believed to not, you know, hold much against each other. Like there was understanding that, you know, it's not us who are doing this to each other. Not so much in Russia, I guess, but kind of in Donbass and in Ukraine. And now, I have a I have a feeling that it's kind of, it's a little bit a matter of class you know of social class and uh, it works not in the way that you would imagine. My just uh, kind of empirical observation is that a lot of educated people, a lot of like intelligentsia and journalists you know, and people kind of from my circle are um, like they are un- they are emerging Russian people and and Russian elites. And they're very strongly, they have this very strong narrative that after what they've done in Bucha, you know, we know that Russian, you know, we can we cannot justify these Russian soldiers by saying that they're just like 18 years old, you know, kids who didn't know what they were doing. They knew and they sadistically meant to do it and everything. And so kind of Ukrainian intelligentsia is really holding strongly to this narrative. And, um, you know, seeing it this way. And somehow, but what's from, and this is what I hear from like most of my, you know, people from my circle, but from kind of conversations that I overhear, you know, in like public buses, you know, and like beauty salons. And like, I was just like in swimming pool today and heard this like cleaning ladies talking to each other. And this kind of lower class people, they often voice the sentiments that we know that Russian people are not to blame, that they are being, you know, they are brainwashed or they are just, You know, they just like didn't realize what's happening. They didn't have other choice and everything. And this is something I noticed before as well. That kind of, kind of simpler. You know, common people. They are they. They just they go less for this like political narratives, and they just come with some common sense. Mm -hmm. Because they don't have
1: the time. Probably might it be because they don't really have the time to calculate war into a wider nation-building identity yeah. or struggle or something like that, yeah. but they are busy trying to find something to eat. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, Could I ask something? You yeah. you mentioned you mentioned Bucha, and you mentioned what intellectuals say about Bucha. So uh, what are people in Bucha saying about what had happened there? How do they cope with that? How do they cope with this enormous attention? I, I was always amazed by how war... Uh, recharts the maps of certain countries. So yeah. all of a sudden, everybody knows about uh, about the place that nobody knew about before, probably even in Ukraine.
2: Okay, so I didn't speak to like so many people. So I don't, I, I, I think I cannot like generalize a lot, but I will tell you maybe a few anecdotes and maybe we can think about what this means. Um, so I, I've spoken to a couple of people from Bucha who just kind of. Um, um said the same thing that we are hearing from there that they've seen you know corpses on the streets and all those kinds of horrors um but um, most of them fled at some point and now they're coming back and now i now the concern of most people from these places is how to actually uh, you know have their lives back have their apartments back and some kind of paradox that uh, that I think a lot of them are aware of is that there is so much of attention and so much of media and everything, but um, it's impossible to get a compensation you know, or some kind of <laughs> real help. So I have, for example, friends who just took a mortgage for apartment in RP just just before it started. And then they ended up, their apartment survived, but this building that was just constructed briefly before the war, it had one direct hit and it's missing kind of half of a top floor. And so they were told, and it has to be fixed now because if it stands open for longer, you know, the whole construction will, will deteriorate. And they were told that, yeah, there is the kind of bureaucratic procedure of applying for compensation. They submitted all the papers, but uh, there is no, you know, no, no understanding of when it will ever, and if it will ever come up with anything. And so these people now have to chip in to fix, to build the piece, the missing piece of the house by themselves. And so people kind of, I think, understand this irony that, yeah, that uh, everybody knows about them, but but they have to, like, build, still build their house back by themselves. But at the same time, uh, I was speaking to the same friends of mine, and they were, they now they're staying in Kiev, but they were wondering when they can actually move back to their apartment. And they said that they believe that maybe, like, in half a year, this town will actually be kind of livable, because now it is livable, there is you know electricity and water is back but still you just walk out and out and it's just ruins and it's kind of depressing and everything and this friend of mine who is also from donetsk she said but of course we know that it's irpin it's not Avdiivka, you know so it will be back to life so people understand that because it's suburbs of kiev and because it was so much publicity you know at least this town will continue existing and you can expect that you will be able to live here while in similar towns in donbass they just can be entirely gone So yeah, I would I came kind of a little later, so I haven't seen much of like that initial horrors and of that initial attention, media attention, because I just heard it from my friends that they were this few first few days when they allowed media into Bucha when it just opened up, that they were just more journalists than like local people there. And they were like producers just fighting and pushing each other like for the right to speak to this to this, you know, old lady who was there. Um, but yeah, I haven't. I haven't personally seen any of those. I mostly came at the time when people are just concerned with was how they can live back in their apartments, and that's it's kind of a big deal because you know you have nowhere else to live, and they need a wall, yeah. and it costs it. It really costs a lot. You know, to like build a piece of a wall, you know. And most Ukrainians, especially now, when many people lost jobs and everything, like how they how are you gonna build this wall? It's it's a big question.
1: And tell me, are there, so now to connect the two, on the one hand, what happened in Butra, and on the other hand, our lack of knowledge of what's happening elsewhere. Is there a dread that that might be, how to put it? I was also completely shocked to see, uh, I had this fratricidal feeling, actually, upon seeing how Russians are organizing the war, looking at the enemy as total enemy from time to time. Um, For me, it seemed inconceivable. And now I keep wondering, given that we know not so much about what's happening all over the country, is there a dread that uh, we uh, can see other surprises such as that one? Or on the other hand, is there some explanation, is there some idea uh, why did it go the way it went uh, in Butcher? Well,
2: I, I'm, afraid, I'm very afraid that we're just not going to see this elsewhere because we're not going to get these places back in the foreseeable future, you know, to be able to see anything. Um, why it went the way it went? I, yeah, it's, it's. It, I, I don't have like a very clear answer, but um, I've seen, you know, I've seen Russians and the way they do it before in the as well. And I think that partly, Partly it's kind of structural thing. they just have, you know, they just have this kind of system that is brutal to themselves as well. And uh, we know that even just like experience of serving in the Russian army is very brutal because there is this thing called Dedevshina, I don't even know how to translate, there's probably no translation, when it lasts two years and the soldiers of the second year just like humiliate and beat up and do all the bad things to the first year. soldiers and then when the first year soldiers become second year they do all the things to the first year ones so there is certain culture of violence if we can call it so you know but I also don't want to sound kind of racist against Russian or something because of course it's not like Russians are you know I, I really disagree with those narratives that Russians are barbarians you know And this is why they you know but there are some political you know reasons why they kind of have for the last several centuries I guess right this kind of culture of violence that that they use against themselves and against people who they conquer. So one thing is just that within their kind of way of doing things, it's just normal to do this, I guess. The the lack of, I guess, like Western style, like democracy and accountability, because like American military have done war crimes as well, but at least there was an outcry, you know, and everything. And uh, in Russia, it doesn't really happen. It's kind of viewed as... Uh, something that is allowed Um, they have this experience from Chechnya where like none of the horrible things done to Chechen people was ever punished so this kind of lack of accountability I guess counts in there too Um, there is something I'm going to say something that is like extremely controversial but um, I do believe that it's you know there is something in it is that generally armies tend to do like all this horrible things in the territories that they perceive as enemy territories more than on their own territories, right? And uh, in 2014 and 15, the Ukrainian army wasn't particularly nice to people in Donbass as well, which, uh, which is one of the things that really scares and upsets me in this war. Like now everybody's going on and on about Russian soldiers stealing, washing machines and whatnot from, you know, looting, doing all the Lutian in Kyiv region. But nobody mentions that there was like tons of looting done by Ukrainian army in 2014 in Donetsk and the suburbs, which like there were Ukrainian media at the time reporting a little bit, you know, and there are kind of many proven cases and everything. And there are many looted washing machines are being used now, you know, by in Ukrainian families from Donbass. And the reason and, uh, you know, I'm far from saying that Russians or Ukrainians do looting because they are inherently, you know, inherently barbarian. But because armies tend to do these things in the territories they perceive as enemy. So if Ukrainian army perceived territory of Donbass as enemy territory, why they surprised that Russian army perceives Ukraine as enemy territory? Especially given all the kind of crazy propaganda that has been poured into their ears for, for years. I just, I just watched yesterday also to add this. Um, um, there is this kind of short, I recommend you to the, the short film called The Occupant. It was made by Ukrainian journalists out of um, the footage that they found in a smartphone of a Russian soldier who was captured, which is itself maybe a violation of Geneva Conventions or something, but they made they made this um, film and published it. And you kind of see it. and so it's like a glimpse into the life of this. So who was not even a soldier, but like a commanding officer into his life and um, before the war and during the war. And when you kind of look at it, you also, it makes you just realize how many of these people are, you know, how, how many of these people are very young and really not, and it's, not, it's true not only for Russia, but something, something in Russia, is, what is happening in Russia is similar, I guess, to what's been happening in the U.S. with the army, is that it's contract army. And people who go there mostly, they are young people who don't have other perspectives in life. There are no people, they're no like hipsters from Moscow, you know, fighting now in Russian army. They're all people from like God knows where um, who didn't know, who don't really know much about Ukraine, you know, or about anything for that purpose. They were just like raised and professionalized in this culture of violence and they just go ahead with it. They don't think about it much.
0: Yeah. I guess one question has been what happens when there aren't enough of those people to continue the project for long enough? uh, If that could have any kind of impact on the war, but.
2: I mean, this is something. Uh, yeah, I've read a lot of stuff on that, and a lot of uh, like oppositional Russian media is uh, very fond of this narrative that Russian army is running out of out of people and it cannot sustain this any longer. Which uh, I I hope it's true, and we are all kind of waiting <laughs> for oh, this right. to happen. But but on the other hand, they have like they do have oh. so many people, right? I guess. Yeah,
0: that sounds like good. somehow. Yeah. It was, Alisa, I was going to follow up uh, with you briefly uh, uh, on something that you were saying uh, earlier when you said that you know this realization is sinking in, that maybe we won't find out uh, what is happening uh, in some of the areas because they will be held by uh, the Russians for a long time. Uh, people you're talking to um, in your own circle or people that you are uh, hearing talking to each other, are there any conversations about you know how this ends or how it gets fixed? Not fixed as in corrected, but how it gets sort of uh, frozen again in time, for lack of a better word. Is there some kind of discussion of either an end or a pause game uh, to this, um, or are people just saying, you know, this is going to be very long haul? put one's head down, survive? Like what, what kind of uh, framing are you hearing?
2: Yeah, I, I definitely don't think that there is any kind of feeling that it's coming to any end uh, mm-hmm. or, the, or even not the end, but any kind of conclusion by Ukrainians. And um, there is something, no, I don't want it to sound kind of too, you know, you know war glorifying or something. But I do think that there is this kind of understanding among Ukrainians that this is kind of existential struggle for us, not in some, you know, bombastic way, but just like very kind of realistically, because um, you know, we, like we know what not not even from Bucha, you know, but generally, even like from Donetsk, from everything, like we know what they have. It's not, kind, it's not like, okay, we, we lose this war, we sign some agreement, we pay some, I don't know, some reparation or something, and we can just go on, you know, and live our separate lives. Yeah. It's kind of, we have a good idea of what is there for us, for Ukraine, if Russia wins it, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's not it's not better than, than dying in war, you know? And so there is understanding that there is basically a choice of either living in some kind of occupation that is really horrible, or dying in war and I think many Ukrainians are actually prepared to die in war you know because it's kind of dying one way or another and it's like really horrible one way or another so I think there is no really um, there is no really any uh, readiness for any kind of settlement because Ukrainians like see very clearly that they won't be left alone you know (laughs) as long as it kind of remains the way it remains there there isn't like yeah there isn't any alternative to this
0: Yeah, I'm curious about connecting that to what you were talking about in the beginning. Are there differences around that between uh, people you hear in Kyiv and people you hear from in other parts of the country?
2: Well, I think so. I won't even talk about people in Western Ukraine because they've always been, been this way, you know? Right. People in Kyiv definitely see it this way. People in Kharkiv see it pretty much this way. And this is something that I wouldn't maybe expect before because Kharkiv is all basically like Donetsk. You know, it's Russian-speaking, you know, eastern city Mm. at the border with Russia. Of course, people I'm speaking to inside of Donetsk, they have entirely different perspective on everything. I won't even go into this right now. But I think think it is shared now. Odessa has been like super pro, not pro-Russian, but kind of Russian city of a big Russian influence. And um, it's definitely people I spoke to there, they definitely share the sentiment too. Because yeah, there has been something like, I don't know, like we've seen, there was this big story I think that kind of influenced many people here that um, on the next day after the invasion started, there was this kind of op-ed written by some Russian author for Russian—I don't remember which media—that was already put on timer, and it, because they thought that they will take Kiev like overnight, and they put this op-ed on timer, and this kind of actually showed up before they remembered to take it out, and it was titled something the the coming of Russia and no the the invasion of Russia and not invasion. It was. Something like invasion, but more positive kind of word the invasion, like of Russia and new world, or something. And it was kind of a pad written, like for Ukrainian people, you know, to explain to them how they have been liberated from, you know, Nazism or whatever they were supposed to be liberated from. And just like the way, and when you read it, you just realize that, like, that you were kind of that they were like really planning to just like put us all into this. You know, and this is kind of crazy Wonderland. You know, of some delusion that they have, and they're just gonna impose. It's like this. You know, there is this popular American uh, TV show about how it's called, about this Gilead. You know, and when they forced all these women to like bear children, how is it called?
0: Um, I'll remember in a minute.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, in, in, the, the, in, in, in the meanwhile, I'll just add that in happier yeah. days we used to joke about Alisa. Uh, as being Alice in Wonderland, because she was coming back from the bus with stories about inverted reality in which things which are allegedly completely surreal are happening on a daily level. Yeah. Now it's reality in a much, much, much bigger territory and that certainly doesn't make anybody happier, yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so I personally, okay, I'm lucky enough. I I live in the United States, so I don't have to deal with it the, the, the way other Ukrainians would have to deal with it. But it's like really, it's not just like physical violence. It's really that you are just like, you know, you are going to be put, like if you end up being occupied by Russia, you're going to be put into some kind of distorted, you know, reality, which just like messes up with your mind. And uh, and there is this, it's not, it's not like either we die or we live free, you know, or this kind of empty statements, but it's just kind of realization that, you know, it's, you know, it's it's really like more reasonable, I guess, to fight in the situation to whatever end it, it, it's going to be. But the, like the, I can't of like whether whether people expect it to end or not. I mentioned in the beginning that like, I see most of people I know living in this terror of those who are not fighting yet, you know, living in this terror of receiving uh, this, um, how we call it in English, this papers, you know, that they are called up for mobilization. Because of course it's scary, like, you know, even if you as much as you're, hate you know the invader and you love your country and everything like not all of us are prepared to just like go and kill somebody tomorrow right or die or something so many people are really like afraid of it and still most people i know they're kind of waiting for it as kind of just the destiny to come like okay we realize that probably earlier or later all of the men who are capable of fighting will be called up for fighting you know and nobody has spoke to her that they will try to you know they will try to evade this Everybody is like, okay, I really dread this, this, this perspective, but of course I'm going to go, you know? So it's kind of, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's kind of the whole atmosphere is of kind of hopelessness, but also like readiness to, to do whatever you have to do, but you know, because there is no much choice.
1: And actually I think that Putin also didn't leave much space, much alternative. I mean, if I remember correctly, his opening speech, it was the, the really strange way to go into war. The idea was that Ukraine, such as we know, it does not really exist and neither do Ukrainians. So what they can do is actually to change the way they live and see themselves and comply with whatever Putin thinks they are or yeah. to push back. So this was everything he had on the table for Ukraine,
2: actually. But that's not, that's what I'm saying all along, right? That it's not just like political, you know, point of like, like we disagree with this or that, but it's just that like, you know, like the way, the life in the New York, this is why I kept calling it Wonderland and it's just like so hard to explain to somebody. I think there were some, you know, there was, there was some writings on the similar topic coming off like Central Europe after, after the, you know, during the early cold war when the, these countries like, you know, Czechoslovakia or Poland, you know, came under Soviet control that suddenly just the whole public sphere is, you know, is this kind of strange, strange manipulative, you know, thing that just demands you to comply with it and say, you know, and it's like so bizarre, like because we all like studied history and we all read, you know, all the stuff about Stalin's repressions and everything, just so bizarre to find yourself in 2022, you know, under the circumstances. So really many Ukrainians just perceive it as like, fighting against some kind of madness as they are all just being forcefully put into some kind of, you know, some kind of a madhouse. Mm.
1: And can I ask one more question? It's about uh, the nuclear escalation in the third world war, because this is something which is mentioned oftentimes outside of Ukraine, and clearly uh, many countries around the world do not want to see themselves engaged in that way. And now I wonder whether this option is something which is seen differently from Ukraine. So for many people all over the world, it's like, okay, I hope this is not going to escalate more than it did already, because, well, I want it contained. And I imagine in Ukraine, this has a bit of a different, um, how to put it, uh, consequences. Because if it's too contained, then it's like, okay, well, it's a Ukrainian thing.
2: Right. So... I th-
1: so the fear yeah, the fear yeah. of nuclear escalation, I just wonder, I have the feeling that it's a bit different in uh, Finland, different. in Ukraine, and in the US.
2: Yeah. Well, the, way, the way people mention it here is that you, of course they are afraid of it, but they're afraid of it so not as something that can be uh, managed, you know, that can be averted or or provoked or something. They're just kind of afraid of it as a hurricane or something that just might eventually happen, you know? But I also I think like the understanding of Ukrainians is that if it is contained to avoid nuclear, nuclear strike, nuclear war, it's contained by our, you know, like, uh, by our cost. The so for for, you, for most Ukrainians, there is no big difference between whether we are nuked or whether we are used to contain, you know, to prevent other, other being nuked, others being nuked. So it's, it's, again, kind of like it's grim one way or another. Yeah.
1: Well, okay, if it's green, we we can't really leave it at that. My last actually question from my side would be, in your experience, what can one do to manage these situations to protect oneself from constant exposure to uh, unpleasant uh, experiences and also to move things forward uh, in a constructive way? What's your recommendation, your way of coping? And also, what's your next move, if I may ask?
2: Wait, you mean uh, how can one manage this as a as as a Ukrainian or as a Westerner or as?
1: Well, uh, pretty much actually, as as ha- uh, whoever. I mean, I discovered, of course, that I don't follow many more news since I'm dealing with Ukrainian students. It helped me a lot because simply it unburdened me of, let's say, responsibility to follow news over one hour a day, which are repetitive and so on. So, doing something, talking to Ukrainian students, helping them out, and so on, helped me do something actually constructive and get out of the situation of helplessness, which war war brings about. Uh, You, for instance, decided to relocate from the U.S. to to Ukraine, uh, which is not what many people are doing. For the most part, they take the reverse uh, ticket. So uh, I wonder what's your next move? And I also wonder, even in a desperate situation, I think uh, good things can be done. I want also to point out to the article Alisa recently wrote called uh, "Be Strong as this Kitchen Cabinet uh, about the role that artifacts and uh, objects assume in the situation of resistance. It's not the kitchen cabinet behind her. Look at the article. You will see
2: the other
1: kitchen cabinet.
0: We'll put those in the show notes. Um,
2: Yeah, so, yeah, speaking of me, I mean... I know I'm in a super privileged position because I kind of came to Ukraine for the summer to do some field work and reporting because I feel I want to be here, but I also have like an easier ticket out. So I'm going back to the US in uh, in late August and I'll have to like write my general exams and do all kinds of boring stuff. Um, but for, I know, definitely for like Americans, um, there is this good Russian expression uh, that either either pull up your underwear or take off your cross, you know, like do like <laughs> either one or another. So I think it, it all, always helps to just kind of be clear, you know, about your moral stance in a sense that, okay, we cannot really like, I'm clear that, okay, Ukraine is kind of my case that I'm standing for. But when I see like starving people and starving children in Yemen or something like this, I'm kind of clear with myself that, okay, I. You know, I'm not as invested in this, you know, and so I'm just going to like move on, you know, i'm not I'm not gonna do something about this. I think uh, like there is something in American culture to kind of you know try to feel moral about everything. So when I see all this like Ukrainian flags and just like private houses in Boston, I'm really not sure like what is the motivation of people put in. like the, sometimes it feels good and initially in the first like few weeks, it felt good. But also, I'm really not sure what the motivation behind people putting these flags, you know. Are they really, like, care? Do they really care about Ukraine so much? Or is it some kind of fashion, you know, when today we care for Ukraine, tomorrow we care for something else? So I think it's, like, it's clear that every single person cannot, like, help every everybody, like, all the suffering in the world. So, like, maybe it's good for everybody to choose, you know, what kind of concrete suffering you can alleviate. Maybe some Americans make a point that is maybe true that, You know, it's easy to just watch news from Ukraine and feel strong about this. Maybe if, you know, you see this and then you see all these homeless guys sleeping, you know, in the next block and you don't really care about them. Maybe you should care about like homeless people, you know, next door rather than people on different continent. So, yeah, I think it always helps to choose, you know, to choose the case (laughs) that you are going to actually be invested in and not just try to care about everything in the world. This is, I guess, it's helpful.
0: Yeah. Lisa, I know we took up a lot of your time, but this was really remarkable. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Well, that was an interesting conversation, I hope, for you too. Yeah.
1: Really interesting. More than. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.